It's holiday season. Christmas is less than a month away. If you're anything like me, you are terrible about putting off gift buying. But don't fret. There are several exclusive offers and early holiday deals at Primos.com. Everything from customized gifts from the custom mill shop, gift guides that you can click on that'll guide you through if the person you're buying a gift for is a deer hunter, a turkey hunter, predator hunter, whatever that person may be into. Or you can just go and scroll through all the exclusive deals that they have available. Everything from blinds, bow slings, bow cases, and a lot more. Check that out at Primos.com. Also, did you know that you could win a brand new Polaris XP1000 North Star Edition? Just by being an Onyx Hunt Elite member, it's true. If you have an active Onyx Hunt Elite account by January 7th, 2024, you are automatically entered to win one of two brand new Polaris Ranger XP1000s North Star Edition. The North Star Edition is like their top of the line creme de la creme and has all the bells and whistles you can imagine. It's incredible. And again, to enter to win, all you have to do is be an Onyx Hunt Elite member. So, if you're an Onyx Hunt Elite member already, thank you. We greatly appreciate it. If you're not an Onyx Hunt Elite member, there's a million and one reasons to become an Elite member already, and now we're going to give you another one. It's going to give you a chance to win a brand new Polaris. So become an Onyx Hunt Elite member today, and I hope you enjoy the show. Rip is on point right up over this choke cherry tree here. Right behind it. Good work, my friend. Thank you. Heck yeah. Good job, Rip. Last week, we took our first in-depth look into the story of quail here in the southeast. We heard from a man who has lived and hunted quail in Mississippi long enough to recall a time when you wouldn't catch an odd look for pulling up to a Mississippi gas station with an English pointer in your truck. We also heard from a man who was born and raised in Tennessee and grew an interest in quail, mainly from the stories from his dad on how things used to be. Last week's episode was mainly meant to maybe pull on your heartstrings a tad, to possibly get you emotionally invested and maybe thinking about a type of hunting that you haven't even tried yet. And maybe you haven't tried it because it's not readily available to you, like deer, squirrel, or turkey hunting is. Unfortunately, if you live in Mississippi, or most places in the southeast, quail hunting's not readily available to you. But it used to be. This week, we're going to look hard into the question of why. Why did we lose our quail, and what exactly caused it? But first, before we dive in, I'm going to pose a few questions to make you think and also get your mind rolling in the right direction for what you're going to hear in this episode. If you were to hop in your vehicle and take a drive around your neighborhood, down the local highway or interstate, down an old country road maybe, if you looked out your window, what would you see? Buildings, ag fields, pasture, blocks of timber, whatever you see around where you live. Have you ever stopped and thought about whether or not it's always been that way? I've come to learn that what we grow up with, we tend to assume that that's just simply the way things have always been. For example, the Mississippi that I've pretty much known for my entire life has been dominated by vast stretches of loblolly pine plantation. But when I stop and think about it, it can't have always been that way. Thousands upon thousands of acres of pine trees planted in rows simply does not occur naturally. So what was there before? And what effect did it have when we made it that way? 
Kicking us off this week is Dr. Mark McConnell. Mark is a professor of upland birds at Mississippi State University. He has a PhD in forest resources, a master's in wildlife and fishery science, and we can just safely say that he knows more about this subject than any of us do, myself included, if that's not already been made blatantly obvious. Mark is going to help all of us understand quail on a more detailed level. What's the historic range of a bobwhite quail? Man, so there's several quail species of specifically the bobwhite. Um, a large portion of the eastern United States, uh, they were I mean, up into southern Wisconsin, mm-hmm. all the way out to Nebraska, parts of Texas, even down into certain parts of Mexico. Mm-hmm. From you know, from all through the east, southeast, uh, even in Pennsylvania, they were historically part of the bobwhite range. So vast, vast mm-hmm. distribution throughout the U.S. They covered the southeast region. Not so much anymore, but they were here. 100%. And like I said, and not just the southeast. Like they were also in the upper Midwest and the Pennsylvania. Yeah, I mean, every state in the southeast historically had a bobwhite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We used to have a lot of quail. We know that. What led to this huge quail decline? Like why, why did, let's say for instance, like central Mississippi, Alabama, why did we once have a lot of quail? And then there was this huge decline and loss of them. What? Yeah. So the the easy part of that question is what they declined throughout the range. Some some parts of the country the decline was steeper than mm-hmm. others, but the overall reason across the range is the same. And then you can break it down by the specific reasons. But the overall reason was we the we, a loss of habitat. And I know people hate when I get a lot of pushback when you say that because like well that's too simple. That's really all it was. The landscape changed. How we manage the landscape changed, and it changed dramatically. And I'll give you an example in a second. But it changed in Nebraska, eastern Nebraska, and it changed in you know South Georgia. It all mm-hmm. changed based off uh, changes in farming practices, how we manage forests, a lack of prescribed fire, and when you collectively add all those things together, there's just less and less quail habitat on the landscape. Mm-hmm. What happened in Mississippi, as an example, and a lot of the southeast states. If you go to, and I, I wrote an article several years ago about this, if you go to any property you're familiar with and you're going to see a predominance of fescue, tall mm-hmm. fescue, Bermuda grass or Bahia grass, um, tons of row crop. And then when you do get into a forest, especially in the deep south, it's a monoculture, high stem density pine forest that rarely gets any fire, if any. When you say monoculture. All the same, gotcha. Just nothing but nothing but loblolly pine trees. Yes, planted in farm that we were farming pine trees. Right. So we plant them in rows and mm-hmm. do the same thing. So, like you know, in, in Mississippi, you know, if you can find a property that isn't dominated by fescue, isn't which is no good for quail for the most part. I mean, mm-hmm. they, you know, there it's it's uh, the the expansion of fescue has been a negative. Um, we used to we used to not farm fence row to fence row. Right. Yeah. We used to have weedy areas around the thing. If you talk to old timers about hunting quail in the deep south, they were hunting the fence rows and the and the the brushy weedy areas in between ag fields. That's where they found birds. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, you know, we don't burnt do prescribed fire anymore. So that's what happened here, but it, it was the same everywhere, right? Agricultural expansion, intensification and, and I just keep using Nebraska as an example, but any of the states that had quail in these areas, um, you have a decline from we just took away what habitat there was. And at one point, they were kind of the most popular game bird, at least in the southeast, but in a lot mm-hmm. of parts of the country because they were they were everywhere. Right. And uh, so you stop burning, you start farming exotic grasses, you start farming row crops more intensively and expanding, and you start taking fire away from the forests. 
all that combines to show that there's just not enough habitat for quail. Mm -hmm. The things that get most of the attention for quail are red imported fire ants, coyotes, um, what else? Any, any predator to blame. And those things certainly don't yeah. help, but they are not the primary reason. So yeah, and I've seen a similar, uh, and this won't be a shock to you, but I've seen a similar, I guess, blaming of those particular, like kind of like hot button topics uh, towards, they say the same thing about turkeys. Yeah. Um, hell, some, hell, sometimes they blame the decline of quail on turkeys. <laughs> really? Oh, I still hear, hear that every year. I have not heard that one. I'll tell that story in a second. I'll let you finish your thought. Are the turkeys <laughs> predating on the quail? <laughs> yeah, it's a fun story. I'll keep going. I'll yeah. come back to it. What I was saying is uh, it, it's everyone down here. It's the my my hypothesis, so to speak, is now nowadays we live in such an instant gratification world. I think people want to find that silver bullet, that one big factor that they go, if we fix this yep. problem solved. And if there's anything that I learned, like you and I talked about, we both were at Mississippi state university at the, at the same time you were further ahead than I was. But, uh, I remember in Dr. Robbie Kroger's class applied aquatic and terrestrial, uh, ecology. He's like, you can never just do one thing. That's right. It's impossible. And the same thing, there's never just one factor. Never. It's never, never one factor. We have no silver bullets in uh, wildlife management, but it, 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 so I think it's a hundred percent. Everybody wants a silver bullet, but I think it's also, and this gets into a little just human psychology, which I'm obviously no expert in. But if you think about the things I just described that, that lead to the quail decline, those are all things we voluntarily did on the landscape mm -hmm. and nobody inherently wants to go. Yes. What we did collectively as, as a society or as farmers or as pine farmers or as landowners was the problem, right? Nobody wants to take that on the nose and say that was, you know, we did this, you know, when, uh, you will talk to some landowners who will flat out say we did everything in our power to get rid of quail for several years, right? Mm -hmm. We were actively working against them. We just didn't realize it maybe, or not everybody understood it. So a lot of times it's like, look, we, we know, we know what affects these birds. We know how to make more birds. We've figured that out. It's really an issue of getting enough landowners to do it so you can kind of create enough quail in the landscape to, to, to bring them back to what mm -hmm. most people want is, you know, maybe huntable numbers. But a lot of people just want to, you know, encounter them. But going back to the fire ants and everything, uh, Lenny Brennan wrote a paper years ago. He's an endowed professor of quail research at Texas A&M. And he talked about how the fire ants and all this stuff, it's all a red herring, right? It's just mm -hmm. something that we're using as an excuse. Yeah, a scapegoat. A scapegoat, yeah. yeah. So... You know, red and port of France, they obviously aren't great, but you know, you can go to, you know, you can go to the Red Hills of South Georgia. There's more quail there than you could ever possibly, you know, shoot into. And mm -hmm. there's fire ant mounds everywhere. There's parts of Texas where there's really abundant quail populations. There's fire ant mounds there. They don't help, but habitat is the ultimate factor right. that we need. So going to the turkey thing, I'd heard some some older people growing up say that you know, the turkeys caused the quail decline, and I thought they were joking, and they weren't. And I know a guy in Oklahoma right now that he's like, man, we, it's, it's those damn turkeys. And so I looked into it because I was like, all right, I keep hearing this. Something's going on here. Yeah. I think in the 70s somewhere, uh, and I, I, I wrote about this in, uh, I think, in one of those Gamekeepers articles I wrote several years ago. I think it was in the 70s in Florida somewhere. Somebody was sitting in a blind uh, trapping turkeys or something, mm -hmm. and they watched a turkey come by. And I think either eat the eggs out of the nest or eat some something happened, right? And let's be honest, everything will eat a quail. 
Tall Timbers Research Station used to have a video of a deer eating eggs, quail eggs out of the nest, right? <laughs> uh, James Martin, who you'll interview later, he had a study down there where a bullfrog ate a, ra- a quail a, no, ra- ate a radioed quail chick. Really? Yeah, it had a little antenna. When they caught the bullfrog, the, ante- the chick's feet and the antenna you could see sticking out of it. So wow. any, now that, that doesn't mean... Bullfrogs are the problem. Bullfrogs are the problem. That's the silver bullet. And yeah. as much as I would love to blame deer for the quail decline, <laughs> nothing would please me more to blame pine goats for that. Um, that's not that's not what happened, right? Yeah. So what happened was this person observed this turkeys. I can't remember if it was chicks or eggs or whatever, but they ate one mm-hmm. or two. And they wrote an article about it in some magazine. Yeah. And this was at the time where, keep in mind, we're talking about this early 70s. The turkey restoration was on the upswing right in the southeast. We were right. restocking turkeys everywhere. It's also about the time... The quail decline had already been going since the 1880s, 1890s, yeah. but we didn't really start talking about it outside of the quail biologist until about the 50s and 60s, right? So you see everyone's talking about quail decline. We're restocking turkeys. People are seeing turkeys everywhere, and people started noticing, hey, I'm seeing a lot of turkeys, and you know what I'm not seeing a lot of is quail. Uh, and the perfect storm of a conspiracy theory was born. And I still, about once a year, I still hear somebody that say, well, isn't it the turkeys? that ruined the quail. And I'm like, no, not really. Uh. <laughs> well, I must say, I think we can, I, I've never heard that theory Well, that makes before. me feel better. Good. As I Maybe think, it's finally been, been dispelled. I've never, never in a million years heard blame it on turkeys. Well, that maybe is I, funny. Maybe though. I shouldn't have said anything. I'd no, I find, re- no, I probably reversed it. No, it's interesting. <laughs> I find it funny. Like that is, that it's, it is very funny. Yeah. One thing, so digging around, like I, I kicked this podcast, this this quail podcast project off because honestly, because of a personal interest that I grew in quail. And so I've been learning a lot, you know, just in, throughout this process. I'm constantly astounded by how much effect we humans as a species have on a landscape. It's like every, like, and I think we downplay it sometimes. You kind of alluded to it earlier. Like no one wants to say we did that. We're the ones who covered everything in pine trees and had this effect. I mean, because in some degree, you would like to think those people back then when the decline started happening, they weren't thinking about it. You, yeah. But but still, it's like how big of an impact we actually have without even realizing it. Yeah, and, and the, without question, and the sad part is, collectively we'll just take landowners in general but in the southeast where i've spent most of my career collectively a lot of landowners were all doing the same thing right we were all farming fence row to fence row we were you know they were converting to fescue we were doing all and and we and the quail the quail community promoted fescue at one point right Mm -hmm. we were so desperate to cover the soil and we we were like oh yeah plant fescue that'll be great and that that was you know one of our biggest mistakes but what's interesting now is you've had such a decline and we've had such an impact on the landscape. Now, when you find landowners, because it's usually just one landowner here or there, sometimes it's a lot, who are really trying to restore quail. Mm-hmm. We got in this situation as a collective body of landowners all doing the same thing. Now it's hard to get all the landowners to do the same thing. Yeah. So like here at Prairie Wildlife in West Point, where well, we work with you know, Mr. Jimmy Bryan to do a lot of quail conservation, He's doing just about as much as you can do on a working farm to maintain it as a working farm, a productive farm, a yeah. profitable farm, and have quail. Right? He's doing just about everything he can. But unless all the landowners around him do it, there's only so high his quail population can get. right? Because at the end of the day, it's just one piece of property, mm-hmm. and you need that landscape effect that drove quail to decline. You right. need that landscape effect to get quail back. To reverse it. Yeah, yeah and now we're never going to get back. I say reverse it, yeah. 
I tell people all the time, like we're never going to get quail numbers back to where they were, say, in the 40s or the 50s, right? That that is, in my opinion, that is not a, a fruitful endeavor. That's what Dr. Craig Harper said. That made me sad. <laughs> it is. But so when people ask me, because I think I was on a podcast somewhere, and they said, can we ever get quail uh, back to huntable numbers? And I said, well, it depends on what you mean. Mm-hmm. Huntable numbers in the 50s? No, the landscape has changed way too much. But... You know, and you'll hear some old guys say they used to go out and find eight or ten cubbies in a day. And that, that was true. That was very easy to do in many parts of the southeast. Now, if you're if a landowner or several landowners are working collectively to, to really try to get quail conservation on the ground and they're, and they're following the science and doing the best they can. What I tell people is you just have to lower your expectation. Now, going out in a morning hunt and finding two to three cubbies is considered success. Mm-hmm. Right. Years ago, that would have been a very bad day. Right. Yeah. So we just have to change our expectations, right? We can have huntable quail numbers again, but it's not going to be a tailgate full of Bob White at the end of the day. Right? Yeah. It may be three or four or five that you shoot, you know, and that's probably what the future of quail hunting looks like. And for every quail hunter I know, that's more than enough. See, that's what Andy and Edward, Andy Edwards and I were talking about that, about the, the measure of success and how you grade that. So it's like, to me, and like I said, we, we live in a, within a hunting community where your whitetail hunting and your waterfowl and your turkeys big game gets all most of the shine, yep. you know, um, the term limiting out gets a lot of shine, a different grading scale on how you judge success. Yeah. T- Tag Robinson has a great, uh, quote. He goes, we're going to make quail hunting cool again. <laughs> and we were, he and I were joking about it and something about upland hunting and duck hunting too, but duck hunting is a much easier sale. Cause you're just on average duck hunt you have even have a clue what you're doing you're going to encounter birds whether mm-hmm. you harvest, you know you're going to see them and call all day at least you're going to see them right yeah, yeah. upland hunting is different right you don't all you don't often see that many birds per hour of effort right, right so it's right. a whole different mentality but going about how to make it an easy sell so if you look at any of the hunting magazines uh upland hunting magazines all right what are, what are they selling uh cool shotguns cool dogs cigars bourbon <laughs> right sometimes wine i mean upland hunting kind of hits all those points those are all my favorite things yeah. you know and so it's a you know i used to never be like a, i was a minimalist type duck hunter I, i'd never spent a lot of time on gear and stuff and as an upland hunter i mean i get really into like you know the just the smell of your you know your your chaps and stuff yeah. these things that just the the I mean, I don't, I don't go on a quail hunt without a cigar in my pocket. That's largely Mr. Jimmy's fault. <laughs> uh, so this whole part of upland hunting is just different. And the dogs, yeah. you know, it's not like duck hunting, which I, you know, I love duck hunting and with my dog, but you know, they're sitting there, mm-hmm. you know, you're not watching them work the whole time. You're yeah. waiting for something, but in upland hunting, you're just watching the dog the whole time. Yeah. And that, that is, I mean, a day behind a bird dog's better than just about any other day. I would yeah. strongly agree. Yeah. I would strongly agree with that. What was the... When you started in your role and started working some with upland birds, what was the the general consensus where you worked of like the state of quail in the southeast? Like what were what were you working from, so to speak? I'd say in the and in, in most of the public's eyes that I spoke to back then, most people and even some wildlife professionals, they were like, Hey, don't don't start your career on quail. Right. Mm. Quail we've got most like we were talking at lunch, most people have written off quail already. Yeah. Right. And then they would say, well, look, if you want to work quail, you're going to have to work in agriculture and don't try to be a wildlife biologist in an agricultural landscape. People were trying to talk me out of it, mm-hmm. honestly. And I, perfectly full truthfulness here, that probably 
made me want to do it more because <laughs> I didn't like the idea that someone said it's not worth it to work in this landscape because I'd worked on a farm. I'd worked with landowners. I, I knew landowners had a conservation mindset mm -hmm. when, when they were, when, when they could fit it in. So to me, it was kind of, that was kind of the challenge, but yeah, no, in general, I mean, I worked when I started my undergraduate degree, I worked in Louisiana, uh, in Louisiana with a, a quail biologist there named Cody Setatal. And Cody, you know, he was fairly optimistic um, and taught me a lot. And I, so, I, and then when I did my master's, I was working with Wes Berger, who was, you know, at the time one of the leading quail researchers, and he was very optimistic. So I was always around optimistic people in the quail world. Mm -hmm. Outside of the quail world, in, but in the wildlife community, a lot of people were not, they, they didn't think it was a good way to focus my career. Right. But then once you, once you, I mean, once you see a quail, and if you're lucky enough to hold one, yeah, just there's just no going back. But what really got me excited about quail, because uh, I really didn't see one. I grew up in North Louisiana. I didn't see one. I was 21 years old. Sure. In Arkansas, sure. for that matter. Yeah. Coming out of a Cerecia patch, which is the last place you want to <laughs> – bad first experience. The I was big into burning and manipulation, and, and you know, they call it the firebird. So, like, that's what got me into it. It's like, hey, this is a, bird, this is a critter that I can manage – and people want me to light fires. Yeah. And the the fire probably is what really sold me initially. Gotcha. Because, you know, you're a 19 year old kid and someone gives you a drip torch. I mean, there's just. And tells just, you it's constructive. And yeah. tell you you're supposed to do it, you know. <laughs> so that was that was what really helped me. Yeah. But yeah the general consensus in the quail world, I'll, I'll give the quail community credit. They remain uh, cautiously optimistic. I, you know, I've been in quail research, you know, for, I guess, over 50, maybe 15 or so years now. Um the quail world remains cautiously optimistic. The the wildlife community outside of the quail world, um, not nearly as optimistic. Yeah, I can see that just from where I'm at. Yeah. It, it seems, yeah, I mean, like you said, for the most part, you to find someone that is optimistic and or willing to talk about quail, they're going to be very, they're going to be very passionate about it. Someone yeah. that doesn't care much about quail hunting, they, most of them, they're like, it's, it's, it's done. You know, that's kind of a dying sport. You yeah, know? and Dr. James Martin, who you'll interview later, he uh, he wrote an article, a column for, I think, Quail Forever's magazine in this last issue, maybe, where I, 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 I read it, but I'm paraphrasing it here. He pretty much says the number one ingredient to be successful is in quail management is just passion. Like, you've got to be obsessed with this bird and willing to, to devote so much effort mm -hmm. because we see it a lot. A lot. A lot of landowners, they start and they go pretty good for a while. But if you don't just have a passion for this bird, it's very hard to maintain, you know, that level of momentum and progress. Yeah. That's what um, Dr. Harper said, something similar. He said, most people, when we lay out for them what they have to do to manage Bob Whites, they just don't do it because it's the work's too intensive for yeah. them. Yeah. Do you have anything specific project wise right now that you're excited about that's going on well i just finished up one project here at uh prairie wildlife uh that student actually defends here in a couple of weeks um that was one of, one of her parts of her project was uh it was the first ever investigation into uh roosting habitat during the breeding season hmm. so all the um all the roosting information we have on where they where quail roost it's all from the the fall when they're in coveys right no one had ever investigated where they roost at night during the breeding season, which is about six ish months plus the year in the deep South. I mean, really? Oh yeah. I mean, they start, we, I mean, breeding season here, we generally just cut it off April 15th to, you know, damn near the end of August often. Hmm. And this year, a lot of the Southeast, especially in Mississippi, we had a lot of late hatches cause it was dry for so long. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, they, they, I mean, they breed, I mean, you'll start hearing, they'll start singing a little before April 15th, but generally by April 15th, you've got a bunch of males singing, doing the, the, you know, the, the Bob White, and then uh, they'll nest repeatedly as much as they can, essentially, whether there's, whether they, their nest hatches or not, they'll just keep going as, you know, a whole bunch of the birds nest multiple times, not all of them. So it's a really long breeding season. Okay. So it's six months out of the year that we didn't know if they're not on a nest because they're on the nest obviously they spend the night on the nest mm-hmm. but where do they spend the night when they're not on a nest yeah and it just drove me crazy not knowing that because we say it's one of the most well-studied species in the you know, avian species in the country and it is in terms mm-hmm. of number of publications but it just infuriated me that i didn't know where because they don't because they typically roost is they're not in coveys obviously they're right. individuals so she you know she had to go out at night and roost them in the evening and then go back the next morning and see if they were still there and we're, we're looking at uh, kind of what type of habitat they're selecting, what type of vegetation cover they're selecting or where they sleep at night mm-hmm. during the breeding season. We, we have a pretty good idea of what they do during the fall. And uh, I'm really excited about that one because it's just new information. It's right. We just didn't know. We're finding out that um, there's some similarities to where coveys roost in terms of the vegetation structure. There's also a lot of differences that we weren't expecting because they're individuals, right? They don't have the same vigilance that, say, the covey has. They, and then they don't need to stay warm because it's summertime in right. Mississippi, so it's a yeah. thousand degrees all day long. Um, so yeah, we're teasing apart some of that. That's really cool. I've got a quail study down at uh, the Jones Ecological Research Center. They call it Itchway. It's uh, <clears throat> southern Georgia. Really excited about that one uh, because that's the first. That's a twenty-nine thousand acre longleaf pine mm-hmm. uh, station. That's never they've never done quail research before. So we've got the first radio tag quail there ever, and. Uh, looking at a bunch of different things, but also one of the cool things is, is looking at, cause fire is such an integral part of that management right. system is Longleaf, right? You just yeah. gotta burn it. And they, the staff there just does this amazing job of, of doing the burns. So I wanted to see, okay, after a burn, if, a, if a birds are in this area, then after the burn, how long does it take them to come back? Cause like with turkeys, you know, and we see those quail too, we joke about that, like they eat fried grasshoppers, right? They'll come yeah. into a burn, but we don't really, and we've all seen that Marcus Lashley has shown that, a whole bunch of people have shown that, but yeah. we, we really don't know how prevalent that is. I mean, is every bird doing that? Are they all doing, how long are they doing? How many sure. days? Like I, I wanted to know this stuff mm. because there's a huge risk for them to be out there. There's very little cover right after a burn. Right. And so I wanted to look at one, how often they're going out there as individuals and then how long and at what point does the vegetation get as it's regrowing before they go back in there kind of at the same rate they were before. Gotcha. So just trying to understand a little bit, yeah. dial in a little bit on what they do after a fire. Yeah. Um, I've got a bunch of other projects, but, um, so most of my research is quail, a little bit of turkeys and some grassland bird stuff. How much research do you do here at Prairie Wildlife? Like a lot, right? Yeah. I think this, in in the last few years I've had, well, we monitor the place year round. Uh, we've got an ARU study, an automated recording unit study where we put out these kind of passive recording units, you know, stuff Chamberlain and them have done on, and Galsby have done on turkeys for a while. Uh, just kind of going off the stuff they started with, with those, with those crit birds. And uh, we've got that. We've did some vegetation manipulation studies out here. Olivia study was out here. In general, we've had you know, three or four different, yeah. different projects, some larger than others going yeah. on, on this property. Yeah. Um, one of the things we talk about, it's like, a, like a, one of the most stark differences between here and like out west is just the amount of public land, whereas here most everything is privately owned. Yeah. And so what becomes valuable is the landowner because the landowner at the end of the day makes the decisions on what happens on that property. So how valuable to someone that does what you do for a living that, you know, how valuable is a place like Prairie Wildlife 
that that treats this place like they do it's probably the most important thing to being able to answer these kinds of questions finding landowners that are willing to do the work uh or passionate about it and then here's the big one and willing to let you do research out there because mm-hmm. sometimes you know they've got an operation out here they're a farming operation they got a hunting operation there's times when we're not you know we're we're we can be challenging to that because of certain things we need to do. Mm-hmm. So to find landowners that are care enough about the science to let you do research and who value the science, the science that you produce and are willing to take the science and go, okay, let's change what we've done. Right. So like at Prairie, we've, I mean, Mr. Jimmy's changed a lot of things over the years based off what the science has told us. You don't get that in a lot of landowners. Um, he can be hardheaded sometimes, but it, you don't get that all the time. So, and like I said, most of this is privately owned. You know, what seventy percent of the lower forty-eight is not industrial, private mm-hmm. landowner, some some stat like that. Mm-hmm. So, the future of quail conservation is not going to be on public land, exactly. Right? It's on private now. Mm-hmm. Shout out to my to my state agency here, and all the state agencies. You know, we the public lands. They, I have a study on public land, uh, looking at kind of the scale of the impact of WMA's managed for quail. And kind of how far that radiates out beyond the WMA. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're doing that. And we need those public areas as showcases. Yeah. And to show the public, hey, you can keep this bird around and increase their numbers through active management. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, the, having landowners are willing to do this. We've got a few of them around the state that we we work with. And they're not by any means all of them. But it is, it is hard to find that combination of passion, interest, and willingness to cooperate with a, with a university. If so, if I told you, you know, going back to that, that cautiously optimistic, if I asked you to take the cautious part out of it and look ahead two years, five years, 10 years, in a best case scenario, what could the forecast of quail in the Southeast look like? Wow, that's a good question. Um, if we maintain the current level of energy and effort across the NGOs and the private landowners, I think we'll, we'll slowly tick up a little bit if we can find a way to reinvigorate more landowners mm-hmm. with this and show them that it's, yeah, it can be labor intensive, but once you kind of get going, like a Prairie Wildlife, a perfect example, like there's a lot of stuff we're still working on, but we're pretty much in what I call maintenance mode. We're pretty much at the point where all we're doing is doing the same manipulations through fire and disking and rotating them we've we've kind of we've kind of reclaimed all the ground we're going to reclaim right, and it's right. just maintenance it's, it's a it's a regimented you know prescription year after year with very little tweaks once you get to that point it's not that hard mm. right um but yeah i mean I, I don't know what kind of number you're looking for or what kind of answer but there's no reason to not be optimistic for quail conservation across the southeast the 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 science has very clearly demonstrated what what makes quail I would argue the the next phase of research really needs to, and I've got a few students looking at this, really needs to be looking at the psychology of the landowner and what it takes, what are, what what do they need to get there, mm. right? Because that I think we we know how to grow quail, yeah. We know how to keep quail alive. We know how to manage them. Not to say there's not always new things we can learn, but we've got we understand that. We got to figure out how to get it on the landscape and mm. keep it on the landscape. And that I think if we can figure that out. Man, what I would hope is anybody who wants to hunt quail and understand, you know, you're not going to find 10 coveys a day right. on average. Anybody who wants to hunt quail has enough public and or private opportunities that anybody who wants to go has enough justification to buy a bird dog. 
Now, I don't know about y'all, but giving somebody a reason to buy a bird dog is a cause that I can 100% get behind. Up next, we're going to hear from John Mark Curtis. John Mark is a farm bill biologist that works for Quail Forever right here in the state of Mississippi. His job mostly involves assisting landowners in designing, developing, funding, habitat improvements, specifically on private lands. John Mark is very knowledgeable on the specific habitat needs. Also, his perspective and opinion on the reason for the decline and the downfall for quail right here in the southeast. Here is John Mark. So, first quail covey I ever saw. I was about 10 years old maybe 11 mm-hmm. and we had just gotten done deer hunting i was deer hunting with my dad and it's me and my little brother and we're walking around on our on our family property uh my grandfather owns a little land in montgomery county mm-hmm. and so we're out there walking and you know we're walking into a recently planted crp hardwood stand and you know it's about of course, you know, at this point I'm yay tall, you know, yeah, so yeah. like the scale is all thrown off for me, but it's, you know, it's shrubbier. The trees haven't closed canopy type stuff yet, you know, yeah. so there's, there's a lot of briars in there, all that sort mm-hmm. of thing. And we get a little ways in there and all of a sudden I hear, you know, yeah. and I don't even know what's going on. I just look up and like, oh, there's birds, you know, yeah. so, and my dad's like, oh, those are quail. You know, yeah. why haven't I seen this before? <laughs> like, yeah, you know, right. and uh, that led to all these questions that we've already talked about. Of right, like, right. Well, why don't we have more of those? Or like, well, what happened to quail? And, you yeah. know, and I think about that a lot. Like that was a moment for me and looking, thinking about like why we don't have quail anymore. Mm-hmm. If you go to that stand right now, it's closed canopy, mm. hardwood, 20, 30 year old stand, no understory whatsoever, just leaf litter. Yeah, that's not quail habitat. There's no place for a quail that's, to be. No, yeah, I will, I'll never see a quail in that stand. That, well, I, you know, never say never. But we'll cut it at some point. But yeah. you know, it—that's what happened to quail. Yeah, and I challenge people because I, I get this all the time. People want to talk about you know other factors that led to quail decline and that sort of thing. But if if you if you hunted quail back in the day, go back and look at those spots where you used to find birds, mm-hmm. and go back and like really think about it like what did that hedgerow you you know that what happened to that hedgerow you used to get quail out of or that you know weedy field where you know you used to flush a bird or two or or whatever the case may be you know Um, yeah go and look at it and see what like look at it honestly would would a quail live there anymore Mm -hmm. and a lot of the times the answer is no what kind of habitat does a quail need so quail are a and a shrubland obligate species basically the things uh, when you're thinking okay let me back up a little bit when you're thinking about bobwhite quail or any species for that matter Mm -hmm. it comes down to habitat what that species needs from a food water shelter space perspective Mm -hmm. having you know all the things that it needs arranged on the landscape in a way where it can use it Uh, so with bobwhite quail from a food perspective in the summer months they're eating a lot of insects in the winter months they're eating a lot of seeds so from food we need stuff that are you know producing on both of those ends uh a quail is a very small ground nesting ground dwelling bird so it's very important that at ground level there's bare ground and open space for quail to be able to move around very easily uh quail chick when it is first born is about the size of your thumbnail 
So when you think of it, yeah, that's pretty small, right? That's small. Yeah. So Everyone, if, you're, if you're listening to this podcast right now, unless you're driving, which some of you might be, if you're at a red light, right, <laughs> stop and look at the size of your thumbnail and realize that's the size of a quail chick. Yeah. When they, when they first hatch. That's and, crazy. And not only that, you know, quail aren't like a, a bluebird or something. They don't stay in the nest. As soon as they hatch, they have to get out of the nest and they have to go and start finding their own food and feeding themselves. So when you look at a field, for example... And like to us, it looks very open. It looks great. But then you kind of peel back, you know, the brushier stuff and look at ground level. If you see a lot of turf forming grass like Bermuda grass or Bahia grass or Mm -hmm. something like that, for example, imagine yourself the size of your thumbnail trying to walk through that Mm -hmm. and realize how difficult that would be to you. So and like. If they're not able to get to enough food to sustain themselves, say, a you know, a hen lays a nest in a field like that, the chicks hatch, they, you know, get out of the nest and they start going and that's what they run into. They're not going to make it very long. So, mm-hmm. you know, and without recruitment, you're not going to have quail for very long on a property. Right. So you need open at ground level, but also cover uh, to keep, to provide shade and, to uh, you know, provide them places to hide essentially mm-hmm. on top of that you also need shrubby escape cover so you need areas that uh of you know thicker brambles and things like that think blackberry thickets and yeah, that yeah, sort yeah. of thing kind yeah. of spread across the property um that way on average a quail can fly about 120 yards ish you know there's exceptions to that obviously but that's that's the number that gets thrown around mm-hmm. You, they are not going to want to be much farther than that from some sort of escape cover because nothing knows how delicious it is as well as a bobwhite quail. You know, <laughs> like they know every everything out there wants to eat them. Yeah. Uh, so they need to be able to have you know places where they can escape and where they can get away. Um, a pretty good example of this: uh, we usually go hunt in Kansas. Yeah. Uh, you know, and have been for the last couple of years. Uh, and it took two years of going up there, but I can remember the exact spot I was standing in. Uh, we had just gotten into a covey of quail and we don't find all that many quail cause we're usually up there pheasant hunting, right? We're right, pushing yeah. these giant grass fields, these mm-hmm. CRP fields. Mm-hmm. And you've pheasant hunted yeah. a good bit, Typ- right? Typically, yeah. And exactly like what you're saying, typically we're pheasant hunting. And if we find quail, we're like, oh, cool. Yeah. 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 They're kind of, I hate to call a quail a bonus bird because I love them way know, more than I do pheasants. Yeah, but know you know, yeah. it's like, that's the way we had approached it yeah. for, you know, several years. Yeah. Um, and you're walking fields and fields of big, you know, big blue stem Indian grass that's mm-hmm. this tall and thick yeah. as all get out. And you're not finding quail out there. Right. After that covey, all of a sudden something clicked in my head. It's like, oh my goodness, y'all have, in two years of coming out here, you haven't found a single covey of quail that wasn't, you know, closer than a hundred yards to a shrub thicket, you know, some sort of sand plum. Yeah. And uh, that's remained true every other time we've gone out there too, because they need that cover. And if you think about those real thick CRP plantings, you know, uh, back to what we were talking about, about them needing bare ground and that sort of thing to be able to move around easily because their legs are pretty short, even right. an adult quail compared to a pheasant. Um, you know, that, that becomes pretty, pretty garbage from a quail perspective you yeah. know, pretty quickly. Yeah. So we were, we were talking about, we used to have a lot of quail. Okay. Well, why? Sure. You know, and it's, it's hard for somebody, even for me, yeah. it's yeah. like my knowledge of what my state along Mississippi mm-hmm. and the rest of Southeast, it's predominantly timbered. Yep. It's a whole lot of loblolly pine. That's right. And it's like trying to grasp 
how different this landscape looked yeah back in the 1920s 19 you know when when quail populations were yeah astonishingly better than they were now oh absolutely 1800s in the civil war yeah yeah and so that's why i asked that question gotcha gotcha well from a mississippi perspective anyway when you think about that landscape you know there was a lot more sharecropping and like small patch farming Mm -hmm. and you know people are planting you know we don't have combines tractors as big fields as we you know do now everybody was doing a lot more by hand or with mule or whatever else and you had a lot and not only that but our food supply system wasn't nearly what it is now so everything you were eating you were growing locally or somebody was so you had a huge variety of crops that were being produced Um, people fallowed fields Mm -hmm. uh, which was huge for bob white quail because you know uh that first year of growth, you get a lot of stuff like annual ragweed, partridge pea, you know, plants like that that are really great for quail. And it creates what we call brood fields, which is exactly mm. what we were talking about earlier right. with that like real bare ground because it was disc that year before, mm. you know, or plowed, I should say. And, uh, you know, with some of these annual weeds growing up and providing shade and providing food resources yeah. and things like that. So you had that spread out all across the place. And we didn't have as many trees as we do now, by yeah. any means. And people, yeah. probably one of the biggest things too, like, is people were more present on the landscape. Yeah, it really is what it comes down to. Quail are a species of disturbance. If you're not constantly disturbing your property, you're not going to have bobwhite quail. Mm-hmm. So, and whether that's fire or disking or what have you. Um, and I think you talked a little bit about this with, uh, when you were talking to Craig Harper, I yeah. listened to that podcast. Um, and you were talking about how you have some friends who, you know, have started burning their properties and, they're and all of a sudden quail. now there's quail. Yeah. It's like, it's pretty cool. Like, yeah. you know, they, they respond very quickly to habitat yeah. being put in place or, you know, having the resources that they need mm-hmm. to be successful. Um, it's uh it's it's really cool i'm honestly at a point now where i don't believe there's anywhere in mississippi where if you don't if you don't build it they'll come yeah you know when i first started this job i worried about that like where's the source population yeah i haven't ever seen that be an issue for me a lot of it is the family thing too right the because that's quail hunting something both my granddads did as well right you know and you know that's something that i always wanted to do and i grew up asking that question like you know people would talk about quail and i'd be like well why don't we have quail mm-hmm. like well we just don't have them anymore yeah and like we and phrased in a way where it's like well we can't have them yeah. anymore and you, like you're talking and, it's like well that's just over yeah, yeah yeah and that just i don't know i'm not a very bullheaded person but some things just annoy me and anyway mm-hmm. I, I think that's really what inspired me to end up in the field that i'm in is like well no it, it can't just be no yeah. like there's got to be a reason like what's the reason and can we do anything and and that sort of thing but um I, yeah no I, honestly i'm cautiously optimistic is what i'll call it that's, yeah, that, um, is, that is the exact term mcconnell is used. it really cautiously yeah. optimistic so so i i keep in mind that i'm early enough in my career that i'm still like very optimistic about everything like I, i'm not the old soul who's been beating away at this for 30 years and like mm-hmm. trying to make a difference and not seeing anything happen but like i really think we are poised at a kind of at a point a breaking point of sorts where the science behind managing for the two things that we love in the south is especially in mississippi as much as anything deer and turkeys mm-hmm. a lot of the science is now pointing to hey if you want bigger deer if you want more successful turkey broods, you've got to thin and you've got to burn. 
Mm-hmm. You need to produce that forage. You need to produce that brood habitat. And uh, as more people do that, funny enough, those are the same things quail need. You yeah. know, <laughs> so like you mm-hmm. know, cr- creating good brood habitat for turkeys, that's pretty decent quail cover you know um thinning your pines and burning them on a two-year rotation that's exactly what i'd tell you to do well i you know and with some changes occasionally in the timing but Mm -hmm. in general that would be your cookie cutter recommendation for bob white quail right so i'm excited i i think that you know as more landowners become more active managers mm-hmm. on their property and really, you know, start managing for these species that we already have to, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's okay. I don't care why you're doing it as long as it helps. But I think, you know, that I, th- I think we have a, a really good shot of, and like you said, fifties numbers. No, I mean, I'd, I'd love that. I would love to see that more than just about anything in this world. But, um, certainly more quail than we knew you and i knew growing up right um i think that's very attainable and we're already heading towards that that's what i i feel like i've seen and heard more buzz around upland birds as a whole and also quail specifically Mm -hmm. and i think that's i mean i think they can be attributed to a lot of things but i think some bigger factors are quail forever pheasants forever um things like prairie wildlife yep. you know I, there's a lot of things that again you can can help to point to it but for sure having the feelings that i have about quail i'm here to add more gasoline to the fire absolutely <laughs> man well f- welcome aboard yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. we'll take anyone anybody we can get so yeah. um but no man it's uh it's kind of an exciting time, you know, and, and I think that's an important message for people to hear, at least in Mississippi, you know, and, and really throughout the quail range is it's it's possible. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think so many of us bought into the idea that it isn't yeah. for so long, you know, and I mean, you and I both did like, you know, we, we started deer hunting. You know? I, I, bought, <laughs> like, I bought into it. That's where a, that's what we had. Yeah, <laughs> like, I, I, I bought into it at a very young age yeah. because I like I, in a, I remember them saying i remember them hearing like well the quail's not here anymore and i was like mm-hmm. oh okay and yeah. but i and i didn't i did not think about those stories again until i went quail hunting in the midwest yeah. Yeah. and i was like well why can't we yeah exactly <laughs> this is too much fun not to yeah, have here exactly. why not? <laughs> yeah. i'm a huge proponent in restoration projects with native animals sure. to where they once were yeah you know yeah. you see it with black bears you see it with elk mm-hmm. you see it with all kinds of stuff yeah. but uh right now we're talking about quail well, and I, I really do think there's hope there so here's a question i asked john i asked um mcconnell a similar question and so um you said cautiously optimistic so Mm -hmm. so i'll word it the same way sure sure (laughs) um if i were to say take the cautious and throw it out Mm -hmm. just give me the optimism optimism what could we what is possible in for quail in the southeast in the next two years five years ten years man okay so i guess let me start by saying that i have nothing to base this on mm. <laughs> because this is you know pretty um I'm, I'm just shooting from the hip here sure uh so two to five year two years probably not a ton of change mm-hmm. but at the same time i don't know what all's going on at every part of the country right? sure or uh, every part of the state i should say um 
back to what we were kind of talking about before i do see that increase in fire as a huge thing yeah. like that I, the more we get that on the landscape um again for whatever reason it is the more private landowners can start burning uh the more thinning we can do um even if we can do a little more heavy thinning in pines and that sort of stuff and uh and utilizing you know more creating more acreage that is you know suitable for bobwhite quail mm-hmm. i I think localized success over the next two to five years is very possible, Hmm. if that makes sense. It does. What my hope would be over 10, 15, 20 career length time 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 frame would be that, you know, as some of those pockets build, um, that we end up creating connectivity between them. Yeah. And create more of a lands again, create and somehow create a landscape that is more conducive to quail. And yeah. they start popping up more frequently in places. Mm-hmm. And, but uh, you know, it's it's crazy though. I say all that. I really do think we have quail pretty much everywhere in Mississippi, even mm-hmm. as we speak. I don't think people realize how many quail we have. They really like almost any cut over I go to, anywhere where, you know, there's been a recent timber clear cut. Mm-hmm. Like if, if you sit out there long enough in the spring, there's, you're going to hear a bobwhite quail, you know, two or three years after that, yeah. uh, that cutting. Because, it, again, that large scale disturbance of removing all those trees and that canopy, you end up creating quail habitat. And Whether they just, they just pop not. up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, again, don't care what your reason is. But like you think when you start thinking about all these patches of clear cuts across the state it's like well i mean there is patchy quail cover everywhere yeah. and add on top of that you know a couple folks who decide to thin a little lower and start burning for their turkeys or people who've been doing that for a long time we have landowners that do uh you end up creating more of a happy picture you know of yeah. like oh there there might actually be a chance here so one thing that i remember from when i was really really young that we've kind of lost i feel like in the state as a whole i know there's still people who are real who this doesn't apply to but we're not tight with our neighbors anymore you know have you noticed that as well yeah it's because like i remember when i was a kid like yeah. if, if we needed to borrow a disc or, or you know needed help with something or whatever else you just call you know, we just call the people down the street yeah. and you know and go get it and bring it back or you know they'd do the same to us yeah, you know there's no it, issue there, just, no it, you just did it you just knew it was okay um because you knew everybody and right. now everybody is so protective of like what they have and don't want to share and they're afraid of getting sued or whatever the case may be um and we've we've quit we quit talking across fence lines and mm-hmm. like getting to know the people around us and really for a species like quail who needs that landscape level change to be successful right we have to put together some bigger blocks of you know property at some point yeah. or like more connectivity of habitat if we can ever and there's you know the uh, what am i trying to say the uh, like hunting cooperatives yeah. are becoming a big thing now I, I like i don't know how that'll turn out but i'm very i'm very hopeful that that actually gains some traction because there's a, a not just for quail for a lot of wildlife species there's a mm-hmm. huge potential there yeah well i mean so that's interesting that's like harper was yeah. talking about and he said it was like one thing that i hadn't hadn't thought about is it's like the the time between when quail were very abundant down here to where they're not he's like mm-hmm. the average land ownership 
the average land ownership in acreage between mm-hmm. then and now like now i can't remember what it was exactly but like then it was a couple hundred acres and now the average land ownership sure. is like maybe 12-ish acres oh wow and so if you and to, to your point if you to in order to make a you know a landscape level change yeah you have to have multiple landowners on the same page you do you have to yeah there's no way around it yeah and i hadn't so. thought i had thought about that but then applying that to i because i 100 percent agree with the sentiment that when i was younger it was definitely more there was a lot more communication yeah over a sense of lines. community yeah. you know it's yeah and i don't really know what to attribute that to i don't know the falling out of it but i I definitely agree with that it's happened yeah it's interesting line of thinking yeah yeah and you know it's one of the i think it's one of many things that have led to you know where we are now for sure but it's it's not the leading contributor but i I do wish that there was more of that because working together we can do a lot more than we can you know by ourselves Mm -hmm. and like you know there's a lot of people out there who aren't comfortable with prescribed fire or like these different management techniques or just aren't as interested in wildlife for example as you and i are or managing for deer or turkeys or, or whatever else and you know may not have the tools necessary to do it but if we all work together, you know, you're willing to help out your neighbor learn that stuff, you know, or right. like, hey, we're having a burn. You want to come over and just learn about it, um, you know, and help us out, you know, carry a drip torch a little bit or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, you can start creating adv- advocates of the things that, you know, are helpful yeah. to the species of wildlife that you're trying to promote. They're trying to they want you to learn more about it. Right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, of course. Yeah. You know, so much of the state is privately owned. We need private landowners if. Uh, if we're going to be successful, you know, mm-hmm. managing, it, you know, the public resource of wildlife, yeah, it's it's going to take a lot of people. For but sure. yeah, no, I'm really excited about that. You know, that all that kind of slowed down with the pandemic and that sort of thing. But uh, at this point, I know uh, MDWFP is really trying to ramp up having mm-hmm. those type of landowner workshops to you know teach uh, about prescribed burning. Gotcha. And also, you know, the Mississippi Forestry Commission a couple times a year will have, uh, you know, uh, a course to certify people to be prescribed burn managers mm-hmm. and stuff. And that's right. another great resource for people to look into. Yeah. And you can learn a lot about it. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't just take that course and start burning. Yeah, like, yeah, you, yeah. you know, Go try, yeah, yeah, yeah. Try to get a little experience as well. But right. it's, uh, but I mean, there, there are resources out there. And, mm-hmm. and I'm excited that people are so excited about that because, I mean, the quail's called the firebird for a reason, you know. Right, yeah. It's like, I mean, they're so intrinsically tied to prescribed burning mm-hmm. that, yeah, I mean, without it, you about don't have quail. Yeah. And that's another thing, you know, back in when we think about the early 1900s, the 1800s, like we didn't have bush hogs. When something started looking snaky or was getting grown up, people just went and burned it. Yeah. That's how you cleared land, you know. And uh, and that definitely, you know, created a land, helped create a landscape that was, you know, way more conducive to Bob White Quail. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's another, <laughs> to get back to something you kind of said earlier about, like, why we had quail and, like, why we don't now. Something that it's taken me a long time to realize is that, we never managed for quail in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, I, what, that's one thing that I've, I've learned 
and I, I've talked about that with several of the guys is we almost had quail by default yeah. or by accident. Mm-hmm. Oh, they yeah. were a happy byproduct. Yeah. 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 We were real happy to have them and we didn't do very much to keep them. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but that, I think that's another problem too, is like we had quail because of the way we did business, right. Or the right. way we, you know, our, our economy and our landscape functioned. But we never put much into like actually figuring out, well, how do you make quail? So like, even though there are a lot of people like you and I who have, you know, these memories of quail as being part of their family or, you know, slightly older than us who have a lot of memories of, you know, hunting quail, mm-hmm. none of us really ever learned what the bird needed or like yeah. how to make more of them or, you know, how to, we never went about managing a property specifically for Bob White quail mm-hmm. by and large. And I'm generalizing, but sure. you know, there exceptions to everything, but by you know most of the public we were just happy to have them while we did and and, you know and then in the 80s when we kind of ran out of them people just quit owning bird dogs you know yeah and uh and moved on so it's uh yeah we've we've come a long way (laughs) (laughs) it uh but yeah it's uh i think there's hope i do too remaining cautiously optimistic i like that I really hope that you liked hearing from Mark McConnell and John Mark. I think they gave us a better understanding of what a quail needs habitat-wise, which in turn gives us all a better understanding as to why quail simply cannot exist the way that they used to in the current landscape that we have in the southeast now. I hope that you'll come back next week. We have one more stop in this quail series where we're going to look at what we have going on now and what we could potentially look forward to in the future. As far as I'm concerned, there's definitely hope. If you have any questions, as always, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can hit the Primo's page up or my personal page. I'm not hard to find. We'll catch you back here next week. As always, thank you so much for listening to the Speak the Language podcast presented by Onyx Hunt.